This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Today we're heading over to the east coast of Australia just to check in on the grain harvest, which is well and truly underway, and the big grain handler on the east coast, Grain Corp, now received a million tonnes. So we'll check in, see how things are going there, and then, of course, pop back here and see how things are going, which, if you're in the northern ag area, I mean, things are going at a rapid pace. It's almost, for some, the end of harvest. So we'll take a look at that just after news headlines at half past 12 today. Also... There is a lot of interest from some of the, well, the top chefs around the country in Australian-grown capers. Now, they're quite subtle. They've got this really fresh flavour and quite distinctive from some of the capers that come in from overseas. We'll look at that shortly. Six past 12 here on The Country Hour. The protocol for exporting Australian Hass avocados has been approved by India following a series of trial shipments earlier in the year. CEO of Avocados Australia, John Tyus, says it's exciting news because Australia has a lot of avocados to sell, with the current production sitting around 140,000 tonnes and forecast to grow to around 170,000 tonnes by 2026. John Tyus expects many growers right across the country will be lining up to get accreditation. So from this point, we'll be able to start working with the Australian government to accredit growers and packers to be able to supply Australian avocados to India. Do you expect producers, avocado producers from all over Australia to, to be taking part in this, this new export opportunity? Yeah, we certainly we certainly do. Um, at the moment, Western Australia is currently in in full swing with their their harvest, uh, and they've got a, you know big crop this year. Quite a lot of fruit going to Japan and and Thailand, which was the market that was recently opened. But given the timeframes for this accreditation process and the training and so on, it's likely that we'll pick up Western Australia for India next next season. So our focus will be starting with North Queensland uh, in the new year, uh, getting those businesses that are interested in supplying India, uh, getting them trained and and accredited so that the uh, new season fruit out of North Queensland can be exported to India. And then we'll work our way down the coast as the different regions come into their production time slot, going through the same process. And what about the industry in New South Wales? Are you hearing much from growers on the Mid-North and uh, from the Mid-North Coast and the North Coast? Are, are they particularly interested in, in taking advantage of this new export opportunity? Yes, absolutely. Um, very excited, as everyone is around the, uh, around the country. So we will be working to train and accredit uh, businesses uh, in, in New South Wales um, prior to their supply period next year. And what will this mean for, for the market domestically? Because obviously there's been quite a glut of avocados uh, this year. Has that contributed to, to prices being really driven down for, for producers? 
Yes, certainly there's been a very strong supply into the domestic market. We've been working to try and build these export markets as fast as we can. We've seen massive increases in our exports of Australian avocados, albeit off a pretty small base. But our, uh, our exports for the 12 months till now is uh, almost 14,000 tonnes. A few years ago, only a few years ago, just prior to COVID, we were doing about two or 3,000 tonnes per annum. So we've really ramped things up. But, you know, there's plenty of fruit to go around. There'll still be a lot of fruit uh, marketed domestically. You know, the Australian market is a, is a very good market and we'll continue to supply Australian customers and we really need the domestic market to grow significantly as well. We're expecting our crop supply to be about 170,000 tonnes by 2026. Uh, it's currently around 130 to 140,000 tonnes, so there's still quite a lot of growth coming over the next few years with new trees coming online into production. So, you know, we'll be pushing very hard for new export markets, building the export markets we've got, and certainly building and, uh, and developing further the Australian domestic market. Do you have concerns, though, about the market domestically here? Because they've, they're facing some significant challenges when it comes to the, the price that they're getting back for their product. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's tough. There's no doubt it's tough at the moment. I guess one thing with the, the lower pricing that we're seeing domestically is that it's bringing new customers into the, the category, new buyers. And so hopefully, you know, over time, as we can strengthen demand further domestically, we'll see those those new consumers stick with the category. Because at the moment, we've got about sort of 75 to 80% household penetration. We've got, a, you know, a fairly small group of absolute avocado lovers. So we need to get more people consuming avocados more frequently. And personally, I think there's still a lot of room to grow in the domestic market, but it does take time. You can't do it over, overnight. We've seen significant increases in domestic consumer demand over the last 10 years. So we know it's possible. We know there's room to grow and we just need to keep pushing to increase that consumption domestically. John Tyers, he's the CEO of Avocados Australia and he was speaking to Tina Quinn. 11 past 12. Joshua Franceschi is General Manager of the Avocado Collective, which is a grower-focused avocado business based in the state southwest and packing fruit for 82 growers. The Collective is the second largest avocado exporter in the country, exporting up to 30% of its crop every year. Josh, what does this opportunity to export to India mean for WA growers? Yeah, the uh, exporting into a, into India is a is a huge um, is a huge opportunity for Western Australia. We have a lot of young trees uh, coming online with a lot of more, a lot more production expected in, in the coming years. Currently, Western Australia is um, is supplying the Australian market in entirety with with a huge necessity to incre- increase and expand our uh, export markets. So. We've been lucky enough in Western Australia to be granted uh, Thailand this year, so hearing about India is uh, is great news. Well, it is exciting, isn't it? Because, I mean, that opportunity to go into Thailand, that only happened a couple of months or so ago. How much WA products has already gone into that market? Uh, Thailand is um, has been a great success. Currently, we're, we're exporting around two containers a week into Thailand, which is, which is around six and a half thousand trays a week um, and we expect that to grow in the in the coming weeks as we kind of move into Christmas and Christmas trade picks up 
And then with the Indian market opening up, as we heard from John Tyus just a few moments ago, he was saying that WA growers might miss out going into that market this season because you're, you know, bang in the middle of harvesting as I speak to you this afternoon. So is that the case or you think there might be an opportunity to get in this time round? Yeah, it really depends on our ability to get audits done in the packing facility and in the farms. I would expect that we will make a push to be able to get some product into India this year um, just so that we can improve the trade protocol. But yeah, as as John's mentioned, it's a tight uh, it's a tight squeeze to get anything done before um, before the end of the end of the Western Australian season, knowing that we've got Christmas coming up and um, it's a really busy time of the year. But you would think that a, a lot of WA growers would be sort of lining up to get that accreditation to India. Um, yeah, I would imagine that there would be a couple of us, a couple of the bigger players that would be looking to um, looking to try and get access into India um, this season, but. It's a very busy time of the year for West Australian avocado growers, so it's uh, quite a tedious process to go through auditing and accreditation for these protocol markets. So it wouldn't surprise me if it wouldn't surprise me if a few a few of the guys kind of moved away from it, knowing that uh, it, it's quite a process. And Joshua, what's the difference between say those two markets, um, Thailand getting approval for that just a, a few months ago, and now India? Can you give us an idea of uh, the different? sort of type of market that we're talking about is there a lot of difference yeah sure the the indian market is um is going to be a much more difficult market to to grow um thailand we had access in 10 years ago and spent a lot of time and um and money there kind of developing the thailand market so it was quite a mature supply market with you know good supply chain and good cold chain where india India is not so much. It's it's definitely a developing market for avocados. It's not in the forefront of their diet. So it's one of the things, it's one of product that's going to take a fair bit of time to kind of get over the line, but it is a huge population. So in that in itself, it's a massive opportunity. So it's going to be sort of a bit of a trickle at the start, but what could be the potential of the Indian market? Oh, the potential of the Indian market is that they could take you know, a, a very large amount of avocados from uh, Western Australia. The, the biggest difference between the Indian market and the Thailand market is that the Indian market is open to all of Australia, where the Thailand market is only open to Western Australia. So, you know, with that, you'll get, um, you know, a 52-week supply of avocados out of Australia into India, which will help us, um, you know, secure ourselves in that market um, long-term. And what's the, the you know, the full suite of markets that we're exporting to at the moment. We've mainly focused on India. Obviously, that's the news this week with that protocol being approved and Thailand uh, just a couple of months ago. Where else do we send our fruit? Yeah, currently we're exporting into Thailand, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong uh, and into the Middle East and yeah, hopefully soon to be India. And, you know, John was saying earlier that at the moment national production sits around 140,000 tonnes of fruit and that's forecast to grow to around 170,000 tonnes by 2026. Is it important to keep looking around for, for new markets, new export markets? Yeah, definitely. I mean, avocados um, throughout the country, not just in Western Australia, are, are reaching a point of market saturation in um, in Australia. So growing export markets to make sure that we can um, you know, continue to keep the industry sustainable for its growers is incredibly important. And as we mentioned a few moments ago, you're right in the middle of harvest. How's it going? How's the season treating you? Where are you up to? Yeah, the season's um, the season's been busy. There's a lot of avocados in Western Australia, so 
um, there's plenty of fruit around uh, for, for consumers across the country. Um, we're expecting this to continue on the same way as we kind of move through the December and January period. And by the looks of what's, what's coming through, we're looking like we've set another big crop for next year as well. Joshua, good to talk to you. Thank you. No problem. Thanks, Belinda. Josh Franceschi, he's the general manager of the Avocado Collective. 17 past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Get to the news headlines and then take a look at the weather around Western Australia, kicking that off around about half past 12 today. First up, though, the subtle, refreshing flavour of Australian-grown capers is winning over some of the country's top chefs. Harvesting the pea-sized fruit by hand takes a very long time, but it is worth it when you can sell them for as much as $130 a kilogram. In South Australia's Riverland, Heidi and Dave Setchell have been growing capers alongside their jujubes and dates for almost a decade. Heidi says when it comes to harvesting capers, there is one essential piece of equipment. Yeah, we use pretty high-tech equipment out here. Um, Yeah, I've got some industrial concreters knee pads. They're a caper picker's best friend. So the knee pads are pretty essential. How long have you been picking this morning? About two hours. And how many do you think you pick in two hours? On a good day, I can get close to about half a kilo um, in an hour. But, yeah, it averages just depending on, you know, what's on the plant ready to pick, um, you know, probably only about 350 grams or so. So, yeah, you're not talking big numbers. And Dave was saying he reckons you're the better picker because you're ambidextrous. What's the sort of secrets to picking capers? How do you, yeah, what's the best way to pluck them? Oh, it's just, yeah, being able to use, like, both hands. Um, Sometimes they're a bit, like, sticky on the plants, you know, so sometimes you have to hold the branch and pull off one at a time, which is, yeah, really slow. But if you can sort of hold do, two buds at a time and pick them like with both hands, it's quicker. And you look like you're doing a bit of a twist there as you pick them off. Yeah, it's sort of a little bit. I mean, you just it's hard to explain like how it works. But yeah, you sort of just pick them right at the base of the um, little stem and just give them a little light snap. Some are easier to pick than others. Like there's actually quite a bit of variation in the bushes that we have here. Um, uh, these ones in this top row are especially bred caper plant called Eurekas and they're always really nice to pick. So we tend to focus on these upper rows lot more than the lower ones. Yeah, they look a lot bigger than... I know in the supermarkets you can basically only get ones from from overseas. They look a bit bigger than that, don't they? Oh, they just... You grade them in different sizes. Um, Dave and myself tend to just pick try and pick the buds that are around the five to eight millimetre diameter. There's a whole grading system of, you know, sized capers right up into these big ones. But we, yeah, we don't really have a market for for those or we've never really, like, explored markets for them. So we've just gone for the the mainstream size that, you know, chefs and um, people tend to to like to use. If you go for real little baby capers, um, they're very popular with chefs as well but they're under five mil in size and take an extremely long time to pick a kilo of those. Black Sheep Produce co-owner Heidi Setchell speaking with Eliza Berlage. 
In the southeast of South Australia, Liz Crowley from Ananda Organic made the switch from garlic to capers six years ago. Liz explains how she found her initial customers and why she never needs to advertise her capers. Well, initially I was not stalked, I guess. <laughs> you could say that, but I used to, to I used to watch what was going online and, and see what restaurants were out there. I mean, capers aren't a cheap crop and they are cheap to buy imported, but the way we do them, it takes four hours to pick a kilo. So they're not cheap, but they're totally worth it. So I did, I found, I did see someone do a post on Instagram one day about a chef in Sydney and all he focused on was fish. Now capers and seafood are a match made in heaven. So I thought I would reach out towards him and ask him if he would like me to send him a sample and he said definitely. So I sent my sample off to him and he was on the phone within a week telling me that they're the best thing he's ever tried and how could he get his hands on them. So basically, yeah, that was one of my very first customers. Once he was on board, and he's a very popular chef, he's just been named Australian Chef of the Year. Once he was on board and started posting some of my capers on his meals, I didn't have to reach out to any other customers. I was very lucky to to nail the good one on the head first stop. (laughs) So yeah, and then from now on, I've got a list, basically a list that I've got some chefs on my waiting list to be able to get on board. And we're hoping this year that we'll be able to supply a lot more people now that we've got a lot more bushes in. And we never knew that it would take off like it has, to be honest. So you just thought it might be a bit of a way to make a little bit of money and just a small focus, and that's turned into something much more than that. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was our semi-retirement plan. (laughs) So so now it looks like we won't be going into semi-retirement anytime soon, but um, at least if we can build it up to a lot more bushes and at the end of the day one day when we do want to retire and sell up then we'll have a a a pretty good established business with a good clientele it's a lovely area we're in here 10 minutes out of Narracourt. when you're spending those hours and hours harvesting do you ever think about those high-end restaurants in places like sydney and melbourne where the capers end up and and what's happening to them yes i always think that we're the producer and the chefs are the creators and i love seeing what they do with our capers they post a lot on instagram yeah but it's a thrill to see what um see how they end up from a bush here in Narracourt and how they end up on a plate in sydney it's a, it's a work of art Liz Crowley from Ananda Organic. One such restaurant where the capers end up is the famous Iceberg's dining room and bar right on the coast in Bondi. Culinary director Alex Pritchard says he wasn't always a fan of using capers in his dishes, but that all changed once he understood the differences between Australian and imported products. So look, I originally kind of didn't love capers. I enjoyed them as a as a thing in general, but I didn't find them I didn't find them all that impressive. Traditionally in Australia, we get you know capers that have been imported from Italy or Spain. They've needed to then you know kind of sit on a boat for six to twelve months to get here. They've needed to be you know treated very harshly to be able to survive those conditions. So when I first tried Liz's capers from Ananda, I I found them pretty incredible. They're unlike anything I'd ever eaten before. Right. So taste wise, what is the difference then between a, a fresh caper grown in Australia and one that has been imported. The difference between Liz's capers and say an imported one I think is they're very very clean and neutral so they, they don't have a huge amount of brine in them, they don't have any of these gutsy flavours, they don't need too much salt or vinegar to preserve them so you're actually getting a lot of the natural caper flavour coming through. They're quite delicate so usually 
say something like a, a crudo with a delicate fish like coral trout, I usually wouldn't put, say, an imported caper on the top of them because they're so intense and overpowering. Whereas lizards ones, if you put them on there, it's a subtle, refreshing flavour with a lot of depth and, and fragrance to it that goes really, really well with, with other delicate flavours without overpowering them. And I know you do buy lizards capers now, but can sourcing capers for chefs in Australia or fresh capers be a difficult task? Traditionally, they just hadn't existed. Like it, The only capers we as chefs used to get were, were imported. It's only in the last few years that Liz and one or two other caper growers in Australia have, have kind of come on board. And the other thing that I think is great they're doing is their caper leaves as well, which are phenomenal. Usually to get caper leaves in Australia from overseas, they would come in you know, really, really intensely oiled or kind of brined. So they, the leaves would almost be breaking down or they'd even be too chewy to kind of eat. Whereas Liz's caper leaves are so so soft and delicate and such a beautiful balance of the brine that you kind of, you can use them on just about everything and they don't, they don't overpower them at all. Yeah, is the flavour profile for the leaves very different to the capers themselves? It's quite a similar flavour profile between the leaves and the capers. I suppose I would say that the leaves are probably just a little bit more of a quicker flavour, if that makes sense. Like the the capers, you kind of bite into one and it continues to um, continues to develop on your palate and then kind of goes away over time. Whereas a, whereas a leaf, you kind of bite through it and you get this huge burst of, of acid and fragrance and then it, it, it's gone almost as quickly as it came. Consumers at, at your restaurant a bit surprised at the taste of the capers? Have they had fresh capers often? Yeah, so a lot of customers have never really had capers like this before. So generally when they do have them, they are they are surprised. And we do get a lot of people asking, you know, where, where are they from? Where can I get them? What have you done to them is probably the most frequently asked one. And when we, when we kind of explain, look, we actually haven't done anything to them. They're just that good to begin with. People are really, really shocked. I now know that I'm going to have to have fish and capers in some form or another for dinner tonight. Culinary Director at Icebergs Dining Room and Bar, Alex Pritchard, ending that story from Elsie Adamo and Eliza Balage. And together they put together an online story for you, which you can check out right now. Some great photos there too, so do it. Search ABC Rural and, you guessed it, capers. ABC Rural capers to check out the online story. 27 past 12. Well, last week, the federal government released a new plan with suggestions on how feral goats could be controlled. Bill Currens is the Healthy Landscapes Manager with Bush Heritage Australia. He says there are significant benefits for the environment when feral goats are managed effectively. Bush Heritage bought Charles Darwin Reserve 20 years ago past Perandry and it was a dust bowl mainly caused by feral goats was the word I've been told. And I've met people who were there 20 years ago and said it was an absolute dust bowl. Getting rid of the feral goats that has transformed that property. At Hamlin Reserve is the opposite. We're still dealing with feral goats so after buying the property in 2015. Feral goats are still causing a lot of damage to our landscape and our, our native vegetation and our biodiversity and our, our conservation efforts. What is in this threat abatement plan? There are a number of um, the threat abatement plans for, for different threats and different feral yes. species. So, so what is yep. in this goat threat abatement plan? Yeah, they've got, I think it's um, seven or eight objectives. So it's quite rare. Yeah, they range from you know, a quite predictable one, you know, doing more research. Um, it's quite a predictable one. Just trying to understand the impacts that they're having on, on biodiversity. And even on Hamlin, we've got a, a threatened ecological community, a salt marsh, uh, close to Hamlin Pool that we're trying to learn more about as well. But yeah, currently being grazed by feral goats. So we'd um, 
yeah, so there's some of those objectives line up pretty closely with what we're trying to achieve as bush heritage on, on Hamlin Reserve. Maintaining information on distribution of, of the goats where they are across the country. Investigating new goat control methods. Talking about continuous improvement of animal welfare codes of practice, that's important for us. Yeah, so that's also the, probably the main objectives of the draft plan. So you've seen, the, I guess, the benefit of having goats being managed on one property, but yet to be the case on, on other properties. So do you, in, in what you read from this plan, do you think it goes some way to potentially addressing that problem where the goats are still impacting the, the landscape? The threat abatement plan that's out as a draft for now, I mean, it's all good stuff. It's a, it's a national plan. It's always challenging for a national plan to you know, hit the local ground. Um, I'd like to sort of put an offer out to the Australian government to come to Hamlin and, and work with us on trying to deal with the, the feral goat problem we have. And I say that because we're joining World Heritage, Shark Bay World Heritage Area. We've got 40 kilometres of our boundaries, shared coastline with the Hamlin Pool uh, nature reserve in the World Heritage Area. And the feral goat problem we have are actually coming, you know, entering our property through the World Heritage Area. <laughs> um, so it's quite an interesting situation we have. So, yeah, I'd be keen to have a you know, conversation with the Australian government through this feral goat threat abatement plan about how we can deal with feral goats across that part of the landscape. We're doing our best within our property, but we've got some boundary issues that um, sort of almost beyond our control to sort out. Healthy Landscapes Manager with Bush Heritage Australia, Bill Currens, speaking to Michelle Stanley. And you can take a look at the government's draft goat action plan. Just search feral goat plan to find it. The consultation period is open until February next year. Half past 12 here on The Country Hour. Jonathan Beale is here. What's in the headlines, Jonathan? Thanks, Belinda. The company that owns Optus has announced to the Singapore Stock Exchange an increase in profits. Singapore-based Singtel's half-year profit is up 83% to $2.4 billion Australian dollars. But Optus's earnings in the six months to September are down almost 14%. The results don't include the impact of yesterday's outage, after which Singtel shares plunged 4.8%. The federal government's attempt to make major changes to industrial relations laws this year looks set to fail after some crossbenchers secured support for a different approach. The government wanted to address problems around labour hire, gig workers and wage theft by bundling a range of measures into one piece of legislation. However, the Senate has today agreed to split the bill and support just four changes, which will provide better support for workers who are first responders and those experiencing domestic violence. And the WA government has announced all short-term rental properties in the state will need to be registered by 2025. The move is part of a series of regulatory changes aimed at combating the state's growing housing crisis. Under the changes, all short-term properties, not in use for at least 90 nights a year, will need local government approval. More news, Belinda at one. Jonathan, thank you so much for the update. 28 to 1. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Still to come, off to Mount Barker to take a look at the yarding and the prices at the cattle sale today. And also talking about the strike action, the Australian Meat Industry Council saying that strike action from some inspectors will cause disruptions to processing that could take days to resolve. And also just an update on the grain harvest underway across the country. We'll check conditions in the eastern states and also here in Western Australia. 
First, though, it is off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Caroline Crow, how is it looking across the southwest land division this afternoon? Yeah, good afternoon, Belle. Uh, so at the moment, there's a weak front just moving over the southwest corner, uh, bringing some light showers to that area there. If you sort of draw a line from about uh, Perth to or Mandra, sort of that area, metro area down through Katanning and across to around the Bremer Bay area is probably the, the northern extent of the showers. Very light, uh, just falls with that. And as that moves east uh, rapidly behind the cold front, we're going to have a, a ridge of high pressure uh, push through uh, quite uh, dominantly uh, over the next few days and through uh, the northern parts of the state we're going to see a trough develop and it's uh, the trough's going to extend from inland parts of the state through to the west coast around uh, the the top of the uh, southwest land division and sort of anywhere uh, sort of south of uh, really the trough uh, coming into the next few days or in the outlook period we're going to see thunderstorms gradually develop and extend south through the southwest land division um, now that's mainly from Saturday so if we uh, look a little bit more closer into Saturday from sort of an area perspective for the Southwest Land Division. Uh, those thunderstorms look as though they're going to be at this stage uh, north of um, around the Gerald, uh, sorry, around Durian Bay um, heading south through to about uh, the Hyden area. So northeast of that line there is where the thunderstorm line is likely to be. And then as we progress into Sunday, these showers and thunderstorms potentially will extend a little bit further south and uh, go th- south to the metropolitan area and across uh, towards the um, Hyden area. And then as we even go into Monday, uh, we're still going to have showers and thunderstorms continuing. They will clear the far north north of the Southwest Land Division in the central west and uh, north of Geraldton, uh, but pretty much south of Geraldton and north of, uh, actually, I'm going to say down to the south coast uh, towards the Esperance area, we could sh- see the showers and thunderstorms extend. Um, it's only probably through the southwest district and around that Albany area, uh, so that south coastal area, which may not see thunderstorms at this stage coming into Monday. Uh, and even just looking a little bit further afield into sort of Tuesday ballots, very similar situation. So as that ridge pushes through and that trough develops uh, coming into the next couple of days from the weekend, we've got a prolonged event of uh, thunderstorms potentially through most parts are extending into most parts of the Southwest Land Division. Uh, From a rainfall perspective with the thunderstorms, a little bit different to what we had last weekend. Uh, these thunderstorms do look as though some will have some rainfall with them. Uh, it's a bit patchy at this stage and hard to sort of say exactly where and uh, how much rainfall we will get out of it. Uh, but most, the the area of the, um, the thunderstorms, sorry, the, the area where uh, the thunderstorms are likely to have a little bit more rainfall are probably the north of the Perth uh, area, um, so Perth across to uh, Hyden and, and sort of north of that area, um, and uh, around possibly 4 to 10 mils, uh, maybe isolated 15 mils some of the thunderstorms might have, but like I said, it could be pretty patchy at this point, so it's hard to sort of distinguish any particular area. Um, they could also be a little bit gusty through those northern parts of the southwest land division with the thunderstorms as well, and given the way that the troughs orientated from Saturday, uh, the winds are generally going going to be easterly uh, and they'll be pretty fresh and gusty as well um, uh, through the outlook period. So it's a pretty stagnant uh, kind of uh, pattern bell for the Southwest Land Division uh, coming up uh, and with the weather. And then when we move into northern and eastern parts, Caroline, any of that thunderstorm activity getting into that area? 
Yeah, it is, Belle. So at the moment, uh, the thunderstorms are through uh, most all of the state today is confined to the Kimberley and adjacent parts of the North Interior. Now coming into tomorrow it's a very similar situation where they'll be confined to that area but as that uh, trough becomes more active as I described for the Southwest Land Division coming into Saturday, those thunderstorms will uh, extend from the North, that Kimberley North Interior area through most parts of the interior across into uh, the southern uh, or most parts of the Gascoigne apart from the North East. They, they won't... Uh, develop into the Pilbara, um, but the Southern uh, and um, the Gascoigne uh, through the goldfields and join up with those thunderstorms that I mentioned in the Southwest Land Division. Uh, so sort of if we draw a line south of, I guess, coming into Saturday from Denham Shark Bay area across to Newman and then across into the interior and up through into the Kimberley, uh, south of that line is where the thunderstorms will be and coming into Saturday will be um, all the way down to to the Norseman area, um, but not reaching the Eucla. And then coming into Sunday, uh, they will contract a little bit further south. Uh, so they'll just move south to about uh, that Shark Bay area across to Mika Thara and then up through into the interior and up to the Kimberley and extend all the way down to the south coast and get into the Eucla. And then it'll be fairly similar coming into Monday and Tuesday again, Belle. And then back to this afternoon, Caroline, any warnings? Uh, currently, uh, warnings at the moment uh, for coastal waters. Uh, quite an extensive area extending from the Gascoigne coast all the way around to the Eucla coast today. And then coming into tomorrow, it will extend further north through into uh, the Ningaloo and Pilbara region as well. Uh, but they do ease off the Eucla coast. Well, there's a bit about. So thank you so much for going through those details, Caroline. Appreciate that. Cheers, Belle. 22 to 1. And now with a look at the rainfall figures, here's Richard Hudson. Yeah, in the last 24 hours, so to 9 o'clock this morning, no rain at 5 mils or above anywhere in Western Australia. The most was Denmark that got 4 mils. But there's about 20 fires burning in WA at the moment that are at an advice level. None are at a watch and act, which is good. But uh, for any details on any of those fires, just go to Emergency WA. But it certainly has been... Very dry over the last five or six weeks. Right across Australia, in fact, the Bureau of Meteorology's latest drought statement says nationwide we've just had the fifth driest October on record. So that's since around 1900. And it was the driest October nationwide since 2002. And huge parts of Western Australia have just recorded one of their driest Octobers on record as well. So that includes the bulk of the east of the state and right up to the border and almost the entire Southwest Land Division as well. So that's brought harvest forward for most of the state's grain farmers and CBH Geraldton's port zone manager is Colette Newton who says despite it being just the second week of November, some growers in that northern ag region are going to finish harvesting within the next week. At the minute, it looks like the northern the northern growers are starting to drop off. Um, we've got quite a few guys that deliver to Money and Nangaloo and the Chetgerald Park that are finishing up this week. Further further along the line now, I'd say we've got a good solid seven to ten days left. Gosh, that feels rather early compared to the last couple of years. How much have we received to date? Um, so today we are currently sitting at 892,000 tonne um, and hopefully we'll hit that, that million tonne by sort of Saturday, I would like to think. With about a week, 10 days left to go, have you started closing bins? 
So Moninoka has very limited space left. It's got about 10,000 tonne of space for lupins if we need to go there. But other than that, we've still got most of the bins open that were open. We obviously didn't open everything across the zone this year, just based off, yeah, off tonnages. So the sites that we opened at the beginning of harvest are still open except for Moninoka. CBH Geraldton Port Zone General Manager Colette Newton speaking to Lucinda Joyce, 19 to 1. And the grain harvest is well and truly underway in other states also. In the eastern states, Grain Corp has now received over 1 million tonnes of grain. CEO Robert Spurway has just returned to Australia from a trip to China with the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. He says the face-to-face meetings were worthwhile because it's really important to solidify relations with such an important trading partner. I think it's really important that the government is talking with the Chinese government. It supports the work that we're doing to build relationships between businesses uh, like ourselves in Australia and Chinese business. And really great to see that China has remained a really important customer for grain. Uh, But in particular, with the removal of barley tariffs, that trade flow has started up again. And that means better barley for better beer in China. So that removal of barley tariffs, now that they've been removed, do you think they will return to the level that they were once at? We've already seen very strong demand with the first shipments leaving Australia uh, almost as soon as the tariffs were removed. Uh, So absolutely, we're very confident about that. I would add that we've seen strong demand from uh, Chinese buyers around wheat. Uh, So in many cases, they've found ways to offset the uses of the barley that was just too expensive under the previous tariff regime. Can you tell me what is the state of the current harvest? Harvest is starting to wind up very quickly. In New South Wales alone, we've received over a million tonnes this harvest. Half a million tonnes of that was just in the last week. As traditionally the harvest moves south across Australia, we'll see volume strengthen. We're looking at pretty strong crops in southern New South Wales and into Victoria and Grain Corp set up for that. Uh, We've been working closely with growers. We've got our teams and equipment in place and we're looking forward to harvest continuing over the next number of weeks. What do the tonnages received this season like so far look like? We're pretty happy. It's close to what we'd expect on the forecasts that we've seen from ABARES. And in fact, in some areas, we're seeing slightly stronger than expected yields. In particular, the quality is looking pretty good. So it's been a tough year for growers, particularly in the north of New South Wales, where everyone knows it's been drier. Uh, but southern New South Wales, central and southern New South Wales, and indeed Victoria, uh, is looking really good. So we're optimistic that's going to be a strong harvest and in the weeks ahead. Overall, as ABARES are predicting, we expect at least an average crop in, in this harvest. Grain Corp CEO and Managing Director Robert Spurway speaking to Ondine Slack Smith about how the grain harvest is looking in the eastern states. 17 to 1. Uh, shortly, off to Mount Barker for the results of the cattle market. We'll go through the yarding and the prices for you. And the Australian Meat Industry Council is saying that strike action from some inspectors will cause disruptions to processing that could take days to resolve. The meat inspectors are federal government employees and are community and public sector union members. And they went on strike yesterday for one hour at the end of their shift 
and they'll do it again tomorrow. It's part of rolling action the CPSU is taking after members rejected the federal government's last offer of an 11.2% pay increase over three years. Australian Meat Industry Council's CEO, Patrick Hutchinson, says the meat processing sector and farmers will suffer collateral damage from the strike action. Meat cannot be inspected on behalf of our international markets as per our requirements to export to them. And so we will either have to put that product on the domestic market, which is already burgeoning under the weight of a huge livestock increase in um, supply, or we'll have to close for an hour, or we'll have to go and then eat into overtime, which is quite incredulous considering the fact that um, those people who will then be taking that strike action will then be uh, having to work overtime where they get paid more. So inevitably they just almost get paid twice, which has got to be exceptionally galling to our members. Does a one-hour stop have that much of an impact, though? Isn't that like an extended lunch break? Uh, Far from it. You know, we're very upset of being used as a bargaining chip with the federal government by the CPSU, never spoke to us, never engaged with the industry that they're going to impact, never spoke to the department themselves. Frankly, you know, this is unions gone wild uh, as as within this process. So, uh, you know, stopping for an hour on a factory where, you know, if you're a lamb processor of a certain magnitude, you could be processing 10 a minute. All of a sudden, you know, that's a number of lambs that you then can't process within that hour, especially if you're bulk export. We've got 86 registered export establishments in this country. They uh, run 92 chains, uh, utilising 94 shifts. So there is a lot at stake here. And when you are processing, boning, packaging and then loading out uh, product in that way, these are highly attuned manufacturers. So turning a factory off for an hour is akin to basically turning it off for six hours, trying to get everything back to um, back to functionality again. Did we get a call or any, any information in regards to their strike? No, we didn't. So that's the, the sheer lack of respect that this union has shown our industry. Uh, and at a time when farmers are struggling and trying to get livestock off farms and everything else, this has a knock-on effect that can last not just for hours but for days trying to get back into uh, a rhythm. Patrick Hutchinson, he's the CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council and he was speaking to Lydia Burton, 13 to 1. The union representing those Federal Department of Agriculture inspectors says the meat industry stands to benefit long-term from this week's industrial action. CPSU National Secretary Melissa Donnelly says better pay and conditions will help address worker shortages. Uh, We don't come to this industrial action lightly. We come to it after months and months of negotiations. And our members who work for the department in in abattoirs and in the meat industry want a fair deal on pay. Uh, We all know there are really significant cost of living pressures and employees working for the Department of Agriculture are the same. And we think if the meat industry has concerns about the industrial action, they should direct those to the government and the department. Do you think it's fair that their operations are impacted by these uh, one-hour strikes? 
I think the reality is the pay rates and the conditions that are on offer uh, for Department of Agriculture workers working in abattoirs already have the potential um, to impact operations. We know that the department is near, nearly permanently advertising these roles uh, because at the pay rate and the conditions that are on offer right now, they're struggling to fill them. We don't want a long-term problem. We want a solution here that provides a long-term solution for the industry and these workers. And that means being more attractive in, in terms of their pay conditions so they can attract and retain employees. Do you think that message is getting through by taking this kind of industrial action? I mean, AMIC says that a one-hour strike delays operations for six hours. It could take days to get through a backlog of animals that poses animal welfare issues. Do you think that by taking this action, the federal government is feeling that impact and it will force them to come to the table to negotiate further? I think industrial action is always one of those options that workers don't come to lightly. And it is absolutely the case um, in this circumstance as well that our members have not come to this lightly. They've come to it after months and months of negotiations. And there are a range of pay and allowance issues, allowance issues specific for these workers that, uh, that uh, are not yet resolved. So we would be hopeful, as I'm sure industry will be hopeful, that the government does come to the party and we can resolve this as quickly as possible because it's in the long-term interests of the industry industry, that we have a solution that means that uh, we can attract and retain these workers for the long term. Community and Public Sector Union National Secretary Melissa Donnelly with Lydia Burton. The Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries says it's actively engaging in good faith negotiations and working closely with key stakeholders of the meat industry and individual export meat establishments to minimise the impact of the protected industrial action. 10 to 1. You're with Belinda Baraschetti for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Well, it's 20 years since asbestos was banned in Australia, but there's still a significant amount of ageing asbestos material in buildings and structures right across the country. Asbestos contains fibres that can cause life-threatening health conditions if you breathe them in. So if you're planning any demolition or renovations on the farm... You do need to know if there's any asbestos on your property and you do need to know how to handle it. Brett Baker is president of the Asbestos and Hazmat Removal Contractor Association of New South Wales. He says November is Asbestos Awareness Month and you might be surprised to know just how many building products contain this naturally occurring mineral. Now, you'll find it in around about 3,000 different building products and if I just went through a, just an ordinary home, you could have an asbestos roof or even a farm shed um, or any, any built structure. When you're saying, where, where can you find it um, on the farm? Well, any structures that have been man-made that have been built um, using any form of cladding or insulation um, will typically contain asbestos, as I mentioned, typically one in three. So if we, if we gave you an example of a, of a farmhouse um, or even a shed, it could be the roof, can be the, the guttering, the, the downpipes, the eaves lining, faces underneath tiles as well if it's um if it's got a cement or concrete roof um even on the on the verge cappings under the sides wall cladding window corking so the mastic around the glass 
inside in any wet areas, even on your floors, your, your actual vinyl floors, glue that holds the vinyl floor down, packers in between your piers and your floor joists, and the list just goes on. So as I mentioned, there are around about 3,000 products, so I could sit here all day and give you a list of <laughs> any, anything can really contain asbestos that was um, used for building the actual structure and the linings for a, um, for a structure. You also mentioned there earlier, though, naturally occurring asbestos, and this might be less well known that it can naturally occur in certain rocks and soil as well? Asbestos is a natural product, so it's basically it's a rock. And there's different types of rocks that will contain, you know, your, your common asbestos, which is your blue, your brown, your white asbestos. And it can be found, there are generally built some strips around the nation that, that have um, asbestos. So that said, I guess asbestos, perhaps not a concern until you start moving it. So if you're destructing a property, if you're doing some renovations, or if you are perhaps digging up that soil, this is when problems can occur? It's, it's when it becomes airborne. So... Even if you aren't disturbing it, the wind can disturb it if you have any weather events um, or even fire and that type of thing. It can actually disturb the asbestos without you actually physically touching it. But if you do physically touch or if you have machinery that will go through and break up the asbestos, anything that can generate fibres or generate dust from that asbestos, that's when it can pose an issue. If you have asbestos around the home, you have typically two classes of asbestos. You'll have what they call a bonded or non-friable asbestos, which is typically doesn't become airborne too easily. And if you have that, I'll give you an example. Wall sheeting, for example, um, asbestos-containing wall sheeting. If you keep that well-maintained by keeping it painted, that typically will then encapsulate the asbestos and it doesn't become airborne. Whereas if you have a friable asbestos, which is an asbestos dust or something, if you can just picture if you had some in your hand, if you could pulverise it in the palm of your hand, it becomes like a crumbled or powder. That's what you can typically class as friable asbestos. That relatively um, becomes airborne relatively easily and that can pose certainly pose an issue and it's, and it's much more difficult to contain. So it's not just when you disturb it. It can be just by... By erosion, it can be just by natural consequence with, um, you know, with wind, that airborne fibres can exist. So what is generally the advice around handling this sort of stuff? And that's going to differ as to whether it's in um, a building structure or whether it's in your soil. So you need to do planning. And that's what a lot of people, it's around their house, they, they typically don't plan as much as what they would if they were doing a, a job, you know, for somebody else. It's, um, she'll be right, mate, they'll get in there and they'll, and they'll just get stuck into it. So it really comes down to planning. What I always suggest to people is use an experienced licensed contractor to undertake any work involved with asbestos. Now, I understand that's easy to say sitting back, you know, behind a desk to say that, but some circumstances you certainly can do that much easier than others. Now, much easier is in the built environment, so in a home. It's much easier to get a licensed contractor to come in and to remove the asbestos. Um, whereas I understand with naturally occurring asbestos, if you're in a farm environment, you're certainly not going to get contractors in to undertake farming for you. So you're going to do that yourself. So it comes down to proper planning and putting together what is typically known as an asbestos management plan. An asbestos management plan will help you identify where the asbestos is and what the hazards and control measures are to mitigate somebody breathing in um, asbestos and also cross-contamination. You don't want to then do work out in the field, get asbestos all over you and go back to your loved ones at home and bring asbestos into your house for somebody doing the laundering of the clothing, um, you know, kids coming up and giving you a hug as soon as you get home, them breathing in the asbestos. 
there are all these scenarios where you can try and mitigate that cross-contamination of asbestos. And it's a matter of really planning. And an easy way for people to get more information about this would be um, at the website asbestosawareness.com.au or even speaking to your local council or your regulator. That is the president of the Asbestos and Hazmat Removal Contractor Association of New South Wales, Brett Baker. He was speaking to Selena Green. And that website for the fact sheets and the information as Brett was just mentioning, is asbestosawareness.com.au. Four minutes to one. Hello, I'm Stephanie Smale. Join me for The World Today. Optus under fire. Compensation demands growing and investigations underway after the worst network outage in Australian history. More Palestinians forced to flee their homes amid intense fighting in northern Gaza. The UN saying up to 15,000 people a day are being displaced. And more than 170 South Australian public schools shut down as teachers fight for better pay and conditions. And just on this, this uh, text from Mick in Albany who says, people have short memories with respect to telcos. Service from Telstra is death by a thousand cuts. We get bombarded weekly with apologies, saying the network's poor performance is due to upgrades. Couple that with harassment from non-payment of bills that have been paid and Telstra is often letting customers down. Thank you for that, Mick. Three minutes to one. Let's head off to the market. And the cattle sale is still underway at the Mount Barker sale yards in the Great Southern this afternoon. Tracy Kilner is there. Hi, Tracy. What are the numbers like so far? Numbers were down for a total yarding of 1,868 good quality cattle with wiener calves dominating the numbers. Interim report as um, the sale is still in progress but prices have been trending down with the feeder buyers selective on weights and one buyer absent. The lightweight steers gained 10 cents with restocker buyers realising the value in the young quality calves offered. Heavy cows and bulls eased with processor demand. The lightweight wiener steers sold to 304 cents, while the heavier weights made from 194 to 274 cents. Wiener heifers made from 80 to 182 cents a kilo. Yearling steers sold from 164 to 250 cents, and the yearling heifers returned 130 to 168 cents a kilo. Grown steers eased 10 cents, returning 104 to 200 cents, while the grown heifers sold from 130 to 168 cents a kilo. Heavy cows eased, selling from 70 to 126 cents. Store cows returned 24 to 68 cents to processors and up to 120 cents to restockers. Heavy bulls sold from 50 to 122 cents. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you so much for that interim report from Mount Barker. The sale's still underway. Uh, that wraps up the uh, livestock markets for this week. Tomorrow on the Country Hour, round about this time, uh, Danny Burkett along. Remember last week he didn't answer his phone? He's got some explaining to do for you tomorrow, doesn't he? Uh, but hopefully he is here on the Country Hour tomorrow to go through the wool sales uh, both here and also in the west, in the east, I should say. This week on Landline, removing wool without shearing. So I work with the two most sceptical groups of people on the planet, farmers and scientists, you know. No one believes anything is going to work, but I think this will. And a treat for tractor lovers, the legendary Upton Tractor. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView.
And just repeating the lead story today, the protocol for exporting Australian Hass avocados has been approved by India. Pretty exciting news for avocado growers here in WA and right across the country. On the ABC, time for the news. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.